This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Good afternoon. Welcome to our panel. I'm glad to see many of you here. Thank you for coming. Today, we'll be discussing the nature of work. I know many of you may already have a job now. And it's possible that you're here at Moraine Valley to change the kind of job you do and to pick what you're going to do for a living. Whatever it ends up being, I hope it's something you enjoy because work, to a degree, defines who we are. Not only does it define who we are, but according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average American works about 40 hours a week, which ends up being all day, five days, usually minus Saturday and Sunday. Unfortunately, According to the Conference Board, a consumer research marketing organization, fewer than half Americans say that they like their jobs. So when you think about what you're going to do for a living, we might want to question things beyond how much money am I going to make, how many hours am I going to work. Today, we're actually here to question it even more. We're here to question how the whole system is set up. Why do we even have to work? And what does that mean? And how does it define us? So welcome to ourselves and our work how work makes us who we are. Uh, this panel has been inspired by our library's one book program, and our book is Working by Studs Terkel. He was an American journalist and radio personality who liked to give the average everyday American a voice. So when he created this, this book, Working, that was his goal, and he basically interviewed hundreds of people, everyday people, waitresses, CEOs, accountants, flight attendants, prostitutes, anyone with a job and trying to find out how work makes us who we are. So I'll introduce myself, and then I'll introduce our panelists, and then I'll begin asking them some thought-provoking questions about work and get their perspectives on work. And at the end, hopefully you all have some comments and questions for us. So I'm Chris Applequist. I'm an associate professor of speech and debate, and I'm just here to ask the questions. I've been a teacher my whole life, and before I taught at a college, I taught swimming lessons. So that's why I'm here. Let's see. To my immediate right, we have Marianne Jasek. She's a professor of nursing. And before coming to Moraine, she worked as a psychiatric nurse. So if you're ever studying really late at night and you start to see things, she might know of a pill for you. Yep. <laughs> to her right, we have Professor Richard Wolf. He teaches philosophy, humanities, world religions, and ethics. Before coming to Moraine, he worked as a federal agent doing counterintelligence operations for the government in Europe and the Middle East. Then, he also worked for about a decade doing corporate undercover security work for major worldwide corporation. I'm slightly concerned that he may have tapped my cell phone. <laughs> and to my left, we have, coming from the psychology field, we have Mitch Baker. He has he uh, got a master's degree in psychology and he's a licensed clinical professional counselor. And before that, he worked as an organizational consultant in consumer behavior and organizational design and actually as a private therapist. He wants you to know that whatever you're feeling today, it's okay. Those are your feelings, and they're natural. So let's begin with our first question for the panelists. Question number one. And I'd like you to tie in some of your personal experiences in this question. The question is, do we choose our jobs, or do our jobs choose us? And you may have been asked before, what do you do for a living? And in a way, people are asking, oh, I'm sorry, how did you, yeah, how did you come to your job? And 
oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> do we choose our jobs or do our jobs choose us? Please include your personal path in this answer. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I, I get asked that question a lot. I get asked, um, you know, why did you choose to go into teaching, particularly with your background when I worked with the government before? Did you like working with the government and what made you go into teaching? And I, the answer I give uh, all the time when I'm asked that question is, I don't believe I chose teaching. Uh, I'm a firm believer that our jobs choose us. That's not to say that you can't do something else, but there's a profound difference between a job and a career. Um, I firmly believe that teaching chose me. Uh, even when I was a Fed, uh, I enjoyed my work. I, I, I liked what I did, but there was always something missing inside of me. I knew that I had a passion for teaching and that I wanted to do that. So even though I was relatively happy in my old profession, um, something was, something was, miss, was missing for me, and, and the passion for me was teaching. Um, why that happened, I, you know, I, I don't know, but I, I know that I had a passion to teach, so I think teaching chose me, much like uh, somebody who prefers to work with their hands outside. Maybe they're a, a plumber or a, a bricklayer. You know, they've been blessed with that talent and, and that craft, and in that sense, I think their profession chooses them. Um, so I think all of us have a, a specific gifts and talents that we can use, that we are, we're born with, whether or not we decide to pursue that path and, and, and you know, uh, cultivate that talent, that's up to us. Uh, but I do think there's a profound difference between going to work for a job and then having a career, something that you absolutely are you know, passionate about and that you love. Hi, I'm Marianne. Um, I also believe that um, our job calls us. I, I really feel that nursing is a calling. Um, I've known my whole life that I wanted to work in a medical field. Um, and in fact, there's not a lot of people in my family who really are in a medical field. And when I said I thought I wanted to be a nurse, they really didn't think that was a good idea. And um, my mom had me... Uh, go volunteer and start as a candy striper to see, you know, could I make it in the hospital? How would it be doing that kind of care? Um, and got into, um, you know, a difficult situation the first day, had a lady who um, essentially was dead. And um, I, I noticed her when I was putting ice in her pitcher. And so it, uh, probably an hour later told the nurse, oh, by the way, something's wrong with that lady. And she said eh, she passed away several hours ago. And for most people, they'd say, oh, you know, that should have been it. You should have known that you should have picked a different job. And for me, it was like, see, I should be a nurse. I knew something was wrong with that lady. So um, it's always, it's like my experiences and the things that have happened throughout my career have really just reinforced for me that I was in the right place. And even when I've been in difficult jobs, I think this is my eighth job now as a teacher, when I look at the job, that I might not like, I've still always changed to something within nursing. So I've never left nursing as my career or as my profession. I might have changed the place that I do it or the, the specific task that was connected, but I've always been a nurse, and I, that's the first way. If you ask me about myself, that's usually the first thing I say is I'm a nurse. Um, I'm a romantic at heart, so I'd like to think of the idea of having a calling in life that it'll find you and whatnot. But for many of us, if not most of us, it's actually probably neither. Um, I think from a psychological aspect, it's, it's probably more of an outgrowth. Our, our jobs are probably more of an outgrowth of some opportunity uh, and some encouragement maybe that we received, you know, maybe during those formative years, maybe from our parents, our family, or what have you. 
Uh, it doesn't have to be that our parents sent us to space camp so we become an astronaut. It doesn't have to be that one-to-one type of relationship. But if a parent or a family environment encourages independence, um, a, uh, a sense of meaning and pride in what one does, a person will seek out a career that's going to you know, uh, give them the opportunity to, sh- to, have, to express those abilities. Um, so it doesn't have to be such an obvious following of like, you know, you did this to this or following in your parents' footsteps or the family business. But if independent work is something that you saw your parents do, I mean, it doesn't even, you could be a first-generation college student and say, how does this relate? But if your parents were independent thinkers, independent workers, they work for themselves, um, that is what you saw. You saw them having a meaning in their work, the, the direct relationship from what they had done to the outcomes in their, into their work. And that's something that we kind of see, and we try to seek that out. Now, sometimes it's the exact opposite. Maybe we see our parents do this, and it's a direct reaction. But I think for, for the majority of people, it's more of an outgrowth of opportunities and the encouragement we see um, as we're growing up. I'm hearing a lot of phrasing like calling. Uh, I had a calling, or I had a passion, or I had a passion, and I was working towards something, and an opportunity came up. How many of you sitting in the audience, I just want to see a show of hands, do you feel like you know your calling, like you know what it is you want to be? All right, good. And the rest of you, good luck to you, because personally it was a, it was a long, difficult, confusing path uh, before I found out what it is that I wanted to be. And so I think what we're, we're here to tell you is keep going on your path. Your calling will happen. If you're privileged enough to be here taking classes, you will find that subject matter that you're passionate about, or you'll meet a person in the industry that you think you like. And I think, and I say the word privilege because I'm not sure, and my panelists feel free to respond to this, I'm not sure if the person who works, you know, eight to ten hours a day on an assembly line in a factory, I'm not sure if that was their calling. How would you respond to that? Um, yeah, it, it may be. It certainly may not be. Um, I tell my undergraduates um, all the time in, the, in my philosophy classes, you guys are in a very unique position, particularly if you're in your 20s and you have the opportunity to go to school. You've been given an incredible privilege that maybe your parents and certainly your grandparents didn't have. Um, they probably didn't have the option to you know, pick what they wanted to do in life. Um, and so for many people, if you talk even within your own family, certainly your grandparents, uh, they pretty much had to do what they had to do. Many of them had to drop out of high school even just to support the families, particularly if they come from different countries. That was, a, that was the norm. Um, so understand that, that the college uh, experience is an incredible privilege. I mean, the fact that you get to pick and choose to do something that you love uh, that's an incredible gift. I mean, you're going to answer an alarm clock for the next 50 years of your life. Everybody in this room is going to answer that alarm clock. And I tell my students there's two ways to get out of bed. You can hit that snooze bar 20 times because you absolutely hate what you do. Or you can be the first one at work. You have the incredible opportunity to pick what you want to do for your, for your life. Uh, that's an unbelievable gift. I don't necessarily know if... I'm not as optimistic, I guess, Rich, you know, that uh, you're... At, that you truly are picking what it is that you want. Uh, many people go ahead and uh, major in a career. Uh, my undergrad is actually in journalism, public relations. I am a psychology professor. There's a, you know, I can see the connections and whatnot, but often what we are studying for doesn't necessarily resemble exactly what it is that we're going to end up doing when we do wake up from that snooze button and take that shower and get to work. Uh, you know, for many of us, it 
you know, if you have that calling, maybe it will. Maybe it'll be a smooth transition. It'll be a direct relationship. But I don't think that's necessarily always the case. And going back to the point of whether that, you know, that person, that line worker is really, you know, had that as a calling or not, the it's the the functionality at the time I think determines the calling. If if it's you know at that moment I need to put food on my table, then and that's what the opportunity is given to me, then uh, I'll take that opportunity. I guess. So uh, does anyone wake up saying I want to push a button for the rest of my life? Uh, probably not too many people. So I think uh, I do agree with you that it was a resemblance of the time and. Current circumstances, uh, economic situations aside, I think that we're all fortunate to, to have the opportunities we do and, and a little bit more flexibility in at least giving us the presumption that we're selecting our careers and whatnot. Well, I also think there's a little bit of a difference when you look at um, Turkle calling it working and how he looks at work and how you think about work and what does it mean to you. So. Maybe if your calling is raising a family and so you want to do that the best you can, then you go to that factory job to allow you to have the support to raise your family well because it works in your schedule or it meets your bills or it provides them insurance. So I think you have to also look at what's the definition there. Maybe your calling is to be a musician, but that isn't something that you can easily meet all your material needs with, so you go to that factory job so you can do your music and still live in a lifestyle that you appreciate or you'd like to have. So I think the work sometimes, uh, or the job, uh, is in service to the calling. It, I'm lucky that I like being a nurse and that pays, but you know, if there was something else that I wanted to do, I might have to pick one of those jobs to do that. But if you don't have any calling, I mean, I certainly know some of the patients, like Krista said, I've been a psychiatric nurse for many years. Some of my patients that are really very ill, their highest level of function might be to have a job where they push a few buttons every day into them. That could be their calling, and that's really um, very meaningful to them. So it's, it, I think you have to look at not just the action, but what the action means to you. Good point. Great point. Thank you, panelists. Well, I guess we can move on to our second question. And just something to think about. Have you ever been asked this question, audience? What would you do if you won the lottery? And I don't mean like all the parties and yachts you'd buy, but I mean what would you do for a living? Would you work or whatever you would do all day, would that constitute as work? Which kind of leads to my next question. Why do we work at all? What motivates us? Why do we even have this thing called work? And I'll let the panelists approach that in any way they want. Well, it's funny. I, I ask that very same question uh, in my classes uh, every semester. Um, I think it's a great question for all of us to ask. It kind of kind of helps, I think, people decide what they want to do with their life. I mean, if you won $100 million or $200 million, what would you do with your time? And that's probably, you know, whatever you answer, that's going to be a good indication of what your passion is. Uh, speaking as someone who bought his lottery ticket this morning, um, <laughs> Uh, 18 million, please. Um, so we be here tomorrow? Uh, yeah, I have my students ask me that. Yeah, yeah. I, you know what? I would be. I, I, obviously, I, I'm, I'm speaking. I, I don't know, I, but I hope I get this chance to, 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 to bear this out. But I would be. I, uh, yeah, I, I would be there, and I would be really, really crappy and snotty to my boss. That's for sure. Um, 
But I would. I, I love what I do. Uh, I couldn't imagine myself doing anything else. Now, I've done other things. Um, I could do a lot of other things. Um, I, I choose to be here. I think it's a great question for you guys, particularly if you don't know what you want to do, to ask yourself. Because the last thing, and I can only speak from my experience, and I don't know if the pan other panelists share this opinion or not. They can speak to it on their own. I think one of the worst things you can do, and I'm speaking from my personal experience, is go to work for money. I've done it. It's not rewarding. The thrill ends very, very quickly. Um, I'm a firm believer in you have to do what you love. And that may mean making sacrifices till, till you get there. I took a $15,000 pay cut when I first got hired a long time ago at this school, leaving corporate America, um, which meant I had to, for seven years, take a part-time job. All right, Big shot professor, and I'm working a part-time job just so I can do what I love. All right, But I do it all again. All right. Um, so uh, I think it's a great question. I'd be here tomorrow morning. Go ahead. I'd be here, but I'd change my schedule so it didn't have to start at 6 in the morning. Um, and I am one of those people that hits the snooze, and I do love my job, but I'm not a morning person. So if I, had, if I was independently wealthy, I would still work, but I might change my schedule so I could also sleep late. Um, I looked at, I, I, I went out to the website, and um, there's a lot of great resources. So if you don't have the time or the interest in reading working in and of itself, um, uh, Troy and the other uh, team have really put together several other articles and things on the site um, that are also very interesting. And there were some that were um, about you know, connecting this book to modern times. Um, and I read an article that he had posted from the New York Times that was called Job Satisfaction is Not Just a Matter of Dollars. And this really spoke to me. And just real quickly, I'm going to quote. It says, worker satisfaction, as ordinarily measured, depends at least as much on social aspects of work and having a sense of meaning and interest in work as it does on material rewards. People appear to grow accustomed to changes in material rewards more easily than they do to the daily stress of work. Um, and that really hit me, and I really thought about, um, yes, I would go to work, and there are still a lot of things that you do as a nurse that might be unpleasant um, or difficult when you think about taking care of strangers in a very intimate way very often or following physician's orders, um, working with people all day long who may or may not be nice to you or appreciative of you. So there can be a lot of downsides to that. Um, but the, the people that I know that are happy in nursing are most happy because of that, that social meaning. They have a really good team that they work with, and many of them, those are their friends. Um, and they care about the patients that they're taking care of. Um, and we were just talking about, um, for all of us that teach nursing, if you asked us what our best day is, we teach in the, in the lecture hall, we teach in the lab, and we go to the hospital with our students. And by far, even though when I have a hospital day, I have to get up at 4 in the morning, which you all know is not my time of day. I could stay up till 4 in the morning, but if I had to go to sleep and set my alarm, I'm not really happy. Yet those are always my best days because I got to work one-on-one -on -one with students and we got to take care of patients. And those are really the stories and the interactions that bring meaning and reward, much more than the Fridays that I get my paycheck or the once a year that I get a cost of living raise. That's not really the days I'm happiest. The days I'm happiest is when I'm doing those kinds of things. Still thinking about that lottery. Uh, <laughs>
you know, if I guess if I had won, um, you know, you got to have benefits, so I'd be back. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, all kidding aside, if, uh, I do agree with you that I think uh, working for money is not really the best choice. I mean, obviously, we need money to provide some basic needs and whatnot. But um, I think the question of why we why do we work is really the same question as to what motivates us. And if you're motivated by like the material items, you're going to look for something that's going to provide you the best opportunity to, to acquire things. Um, if it's more of something that you can't touch, more intrinsic, more inside some value, you're going to have a better sense of satisfaction. Uh, I personally put a price on things. I mean, I had jobs like you, Rich, that were you know more lucrative than uh, than academics, and. But I, I swear, I mean, there would be days I'd be taking the L down to my job and, like, my chest would feel heavy and be like, oh, my God, i got to go to work today. I don't have that feeling now, and I enjoy more what I do. Uh, and I thought, you know, I would tell people what I do. Oh, I work in the Sears Tower. Like, ooh, that's a great job. It, you know, there's things that you can do, but it goes away very fast. It fades. So the meaning is really what you put there. And it's, I think it's different for each person. Um, you know, for some of us, it is the monetary, it's the uh, material goods that we can get. But I think it changes throughout time. Um, maybe when you're first starting out, you need the money. It's more about that, positioning yourself. And then as you get a family or you get a mortgage and you want other things or you want to be around for your family, you said, uh, you know, Mary, you put a, put a great point about uh, maybe your calling is being a family person. Uh, you know, maybe you're doing something to provide you the opportunity for flexibility or free time so that way... That is what you're deriving the meaning in your work, or or what uh, is is driving you to you know no pun intended to work. So I think if you love it, when I think if you love it, it feels less like work and just more like life. I'm going to follow up a little bit with uh, some more probing questions. One theme you keep hearing among all the panelists is don't work just for the money. Well, of course we're going to say that we're teachers. Yeah. Um, and uh, and Marianne pointed out a lot that. Really what makes work valuable and meaningful is the, the connections among other people. Yet I bet not everyone in our audience here today is looking forward to working with people. Not everybody looks forward to interacting. They're not, not everybody's a people person. And you started to touch on this a little bit, Mitch. So if you're not a people person, what else can make work meaningful? And if it's not money and if it's not working with people, what else can our students like, look for as criteria in choosing a career path? Uh, if I may, uh, you know, I see some of my I.O. psych students here, and we've talked about this a little bit as far as what gives, uh, what can you have a meaning? If it's not a calling, let's say it's not your passion, it's, it's a job, and it's not that bad, but whatever it is, the things about that job that really uh, kind of contribute, it, you know, pretty much regardless of the job, you find individuals reporting greater levels of satisfaction when they see the outcomes directly into their jobs, um, that there is some type of uh, need motivation that's being fulfilled, whether they feel affiliated, right? You know, McClelland, you know, in the uh, 70s, David McClelland came up with things of uh, achievement theory where he says it's giving us some sense of affiliation, a belonging, a place to go. Um, sometimes it gives us a little sense of power, right? Uh, really, it's... it's uh, and then just overall that sense of achievement, a job well done. Maybe it's the fact that I have these things. I think if we have those some resemblance of that criteria, even if it is just that job, the, the more meaningful it becomes if we can actually see the outputs of our efforts. So. 
Yeah, I was thinking about that too. Um, a lot of people get their sense of self or their sense of worth, I think, from their work. And so doing something well, no matter what it is, can make you feel good about yourself. And so um, it doesn't have to be a, a, something that someone else would consider was a good thing or a positive thing. But if you see it in yourself, it often then reflects your self-esteem. And I see that a lot. Um, we talk a lot, and what I've heard a lot is that, you know, that high work ethic, just trying to do a good job because the best is what you should always do. That's certainly how I was raised a hundred years ago. Um, and when I read things now about, you know, the, the new generation, the students that I'm teaching, a lot of it says that, um, that their goals are exterior. They're more exterior, and it's not about um, doing something for making yourself feel good or being proud of your work. That's what I read. But that hasn't been my experience here with my students. My students still, I see, um, really do try to do the best. And even when they're doing well, they're looking at what could I do to do that better. They're not just trying to get by. And um, certainly, you know, again, even in nursing, you don't always go home feeling good about yourself. Sometimes you had a difficult patient. Sometimes someone died. Sometimes um, you had a conflict. Yet you have to really look at, um, but what did I do in that situation? Did I do the best? I could, and I think that that can also be a reason, is not really the t what, what someone else measures, but how you feel about yourself. One more probing question, building off of what you just said, Marianne. People are always told it's important to have a good work ethic. You're, you're a good person if you have a solid work ethic. And this, the answer to this next question might depend on what culture we're coming from, but what do you all consider a good work ethic? I think it, my answer would, I concur with the panelists on their, on, their other, on their other answer. You carry, you know, one of my favorite philosophers, my students in the audience will know, Aristotle. We are what we repeatedly do. We are what we repeatedly do. And, you know, to answer what a good work ethic is, um, you know, if you're the type of person that you put an average effort into whatever it is that you do, I don't care whether it's work or non-work, you're going to get average results. And the end result of that is pretty average vanilla life. Um, you know, you probably don't want to hear that old saying. Your parents probably told you you're going to get out of life what you put into it. But there's a lot of truth to that. Um, you know, you have to be uh, a strong work ethic is no different whether you're going to work, whether you're pushing a button or pushing a broom or studying for a course or whatever you want to become. That's who you are as a person. And it doesn't just go for work. You know, you don't find people who are, you know, hard workers at work and then absolutely lazy in every other category in their life. If you find somebody who's a successful person, regardless of their job, they're probably successful in other areas in their life. It's, it's part of your overall personality. You know, find me somebody who's a success at job A, and I bet you if I took them and put them in job B, I bet you that person would succeed over there as well because that person is driven to success. Well, as far as, uh, like, work ethic, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting topic, but I think when we have a, a confidence in our abilities a little bit or, a, uh, you know, I mean, I, I can go back and say, you know, whether you work hard and instill good values and whatnot, but I think if we have a, a confidence or a, or a sense in what we're doing, I think we're going to want to work hard for it. And, uh, you know, as I'm listening to the panelists and just looking back, I'm thinking that, uh, you know, I was always told that college is not uh, like real life, you know, it's like you're, you enjoy the time. And, and I'm actually starting to think now that that's, I don't necessarily believe that value, and, and I apologize because this is actually 
coming as I'm speaking this thought. <laughs> um, so it may not be that coherent a problem of mine. Um, but be that as it may, we have the idea that you know, sometimes you're taking a class, right? Some classes you have to take to graduate. Some classes you want to take because it's within your major. And it's just like a job, you know? I mean, there's could be that perfect job. Uh, it, it, you know, you're not getting paid to do it. In fact, you're paying to be here. Um, you, you, the classes that you want to do, you're going to read the books. You're going to try your hardest. You're going to be attentive in class. You're not going to text. You're not going to do the other thing because this is really meaningful to you, so you don't want to miss a moment. Right? This is life. Otherwise, you'd be cheating yourself that, that joy that you're getting. But then there's the other class, you know, that you're there and it's just a requirement to get to the classes you want to take. And you just do it anyways. And I think the fact that you're able to understand that right now this moment isn't exactly what I'm signed up for, what I really want it to be or whatever it is, but we still do it anyways. And we do a good job and we find meaning and value into it nonetheless. And, and I think so even bringing it to the to what we're, what you do, what, what we're here for is, um, I, I think if it, it, that's the idea, having the confidence, knowing that there's some output, and, and seeing the meaning in it, even though if it's uh, kind of not a, a direct meaning, it's like this is the what I, I love, the passion. I think that kind of speaks to someone's work ethic. I I just like to add a little bit of a challenge there, and I I have to say, as as I said, I was brought up over a hundred years ago, and hard work was really seen as the right way to be, and it was something that was expected. You should try to do your best. And um, over my life, um, I've had people talk about this because I've had many jobs where I've worked 60 and 70 hours a week. Um, and then what happens there? And I, I, I know I might be getting ahead a little, but we talked a little bit about burnout, too. So is working so hard putting you into a burnout situation? I really think I agree with what my colleagues on the panel have said so far, but I also think that I've learned to also look at um, people who've said to me, work smarter, not harder, um, and that doing your best doesn't necessarily mean that you're there the longest or um, it's the most physical effort. Sometimes there's a different way to approach it. Um, I also think that um, a good friend of mine just recently challenged me that, you know, is it really um, boastful of us to believe that ours is the right way or we have to be the one taking charge or we have to be the one doing it all the time? And isn't there a time to work as a team and work collaboratively and not have to be the one, you know, always doing the most or, t or taking the lead? So I think there are a couple different ways to look at it. And again, like the first point, I think it depends on what's your definition. What does that mean, work ethic? Does it mean you do your best? but you balance and do your best in your personal life and do your best in your relationships and do your best in your spiritual life and really looking at the whole aspect or that you work to the um, detriment of other things. And that's not really, I would think, a good work ethic either. And building off of what you just said, I'd like to pose another little follow-up question to our panelists. Um, how do we find that balance? Because, you know, America works more than any country in Europe. For example, France, who has a four-day work week and about three times as much vacation time as, as Americans do. And there actually isn't, um, in, in many, many occupations, there isn't a federal minimum of vacation. Like your job may give you two weeks or three weeks of vacation, but they're not federally required to. And our students sitting here today are probably working a part-time or full-time job, taking several classes, studying very late at night, and I'm sure that there's times when you've picked an assignment or something and just said, well, you know, I'm going to do my, not my best. I'm going to get the C minus and I'm going to bed. So how, 
how do we find that balance? And and when is work ethic, you know, to the detriment of others, like you said? Yeah, tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> Such an easy question. Uh, well, listen, I, I, yeah, I tell my undergrads uh, and I tell my children the same thing. Uh, I, listen, you're, you're going to forget most of what you learn in all your classes by the time you leave the door. Uh, the number one skill you're going to learn as a college student, as far as I'm concerned, uh, speaking as a former student and as a teacher now, is time management, what the ancients used to call balance. Okay, Now we recreated the wheel and call it time management. Well, time management is a skill you're going to have to carry with you your entire life, and it never gets easier. I know you're busy now. You're going to be busier. You're going to get married. You're going to have kids. You're going to have a mortgage. You're going to have a job. You're going to have a part-time job. Your kids are going to have problems. There's a mother-in-law. I mean, there's a lot of issues out there, right? <laughs> so I mean, the time management part's never going to go away. Uh, I, I absolutely concur w w with my colleagues here. Um, you know, I, I don't think there's anything prideful about saying I worked 18 hours a day and I ignored my kids and I made lots of money and my children don't even know who I am. I, I, you know, if that's your definition of success, I, I think you probably got the wrong panel. Um, you know, balance is the key. I mean, you, you want to look at a person, and again, it's the, it's the well-rounded, I like what you said, the well-rounded aspect. You know, don't forget, you're going to be a father, you're going to be a mother, you're going to be, you're going to be all of those things. Um, how do you do it? I, I, I don't have an answer for you other than the fact that you're going to learn it on the fly. You're going to learn it as you go. You know, hopefully if you're married, your spouse will, you know, ring you in once in a while and say, listen, you know, maybe you don't have to work that extra Saturday. Um, you know, I, when I was starting to become a teacher, I, I worked full time. My wife was at home with our two small children. So I went to, I taught, you know, and then I, I went to school full time. I did that for seven straight years. I don't recommend every, anybody do that. I mean, uh, why my wife didn't leave me, I have no idea. I was never home. Uh, that's not the way to go. So, I mean, while other people looked at me during that time and said, my gosh, what a success, that's a, uh, it's a failure. I mean, I, I failed on so many different levels, it's not even funny. Uh, so it's that well-rounded. You don't want to ignore uh, uh, the other aspects of your life. We're, we're, we're complete packages as people. We're not just workers. We're a lot of other things as well. I think with the you hit it right. Uh, the idea of finding the balance uh, is is kind of key. Um, it goes back to the, even the question of why you work. You know, the the point that you brought up that you're going to learn it along the way. What uh, how to figure that balance out? There's going to be sacrifices that you're going to make, and um, you're, you're going to realize that that was the wrong sacrifice. That uh, what I what I didn't do there so I can achieve this wasn't worth it. It wasn't the right thing, and I guess the 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 next opportunity that you have to either repeat that same behavior or, you know, make a, a better choice that's going to provide that better balance for you, I, I think that's the key, is, is, is identifying some of the choices that we've made throughout and saying, what is important to me, and making sure that uh, whatever it is that's important to you, that you prioritize and, and, and create the time um, to have that. Yeah, otherwise, you, you can't just be defined by your work. You can't just be a psychology professor. You can't just be a student. You've got to be so many other things that, that, that just make up the quality of your life. And speaking of quality of life and work ethic, a lot of times as professors we notice something called burnout in our students. Maybe you have felt that. Maybe you're feeling it now. You're feeling just burnt out. So I want to pose this to the panelists. What is burnout? What happens there? And, you know, some more tips on how we can stop it. 
with, with burnout, I mean, I can give you a psychological aspect where it's a, uh, basically it's a, re- a reaction resulting from prolonged uh, exposure to stress, okay? You know, but what good does that do for you? Um, you know, in, in reality, it ends to some type of uh, leading, you know, if you start seeing yourself withdrawing from, like, classes, not, not even, like, physically getting the W, but just not showing up as much, uh, pulling back, that's a good sign that you're burnt out, um, if you, you know, in, in, a, in a work environment, people experience bur- burnout. I mean, there's uh, some uh, highly stressful fields, uh, sound familiar from class today. Uh, you know, there's uh, the, the mental health workers, healthcare professionals, uh, police officers, uh, you know, things of that nature are going to be higher to burnout rates. But whatever it is, it, it, you, people experience burnout when there's a, there's a uh, oh God, I think her name was uh, Christina uh, Mazlack. In like the 70s, she did this uh, study about burnout. And, and really what it came down to is um, feeling uh, depersonalized at work contributes to burnout. Um, having a low sense of personal accomplishments contributes to burnout. So if you don't feel like you've accomplished anything in your job, you're going to get burnt out faster. If you feel that you are depersonalized, you know, you're a number, you're a cog, you're a warm body, or you treat other people that way too. It actually goes both ways a little bit, what she said. Um, you're going to be more at risk for uh, a faster burnout rate. Um, and then ultimately, just an emotional exhaustion will be the result of this, this, this burnout, this, this stress. So the stress comes down to the things that were, are damaging the, what, or the stressors, if you will, the things that, are like, that we don't like, that are really the problem, that we need to try to identify those as early as we can so that way we can minimize those and, and really find the strength, find the abilities to, uh, to combat the, uh, the symptoms or the signs when we see them. So. Yeah, so I'm a mental health professional and a healthcare professional, so I've had burnout in many different la- layers. And I think that it doesn't mean, again, sometimes people say when you feel burned out, when you just can't go in another day, can't do another thing, um, does that make you look at are you doing the wrong thing? So is that the wrong job or was that truly not your calling? Um, and, and I agree, again, that over my life I've learned to handle it differently. And now I think, again, it goes back to that balance. It, you can't expect um, doing more of the same. I, I, I love that definition of um, what what is... Um, uh, mental illness or what is being crazy, quote-unquote. I can say that. I'm a psych nurse. Um, crazy is doing the same thing over and over and expecting to get a different result. And so um, if you're at work and you're working really hard and you're working really hard and you're not feeling well and so then you try to do something more to feel better, that easily gets you to burn out and easily gets you really frustrated. I think the same thing happens at school. If you're taking too many classes or uh, trying to get too many things done in a short period of time, you get burned out. So it's back to that balance again. It's not one aspect ever taking over, but trying to have the supports of family, of spiritual, of physical health, um, relaxation. You know, relaxation or idle time might be the opposite of working, and so maybe we shouldn't be talking about that. But if that's not part of the picture, if some of my working isn't to allow me to enjoy my relaxation, then um, I think, again, you're putting yourself at risk for burnout. I just want to add to that a little bit. I know I'm just supposed to ask the questions, but I just want to mention, um, speaking of idle time, I think it's important for you all as students, when you are planning out your schedule, how many courses am I going to take and how much hours am I going to be able to study and when am I going to work, please try to schedule in idle time. 
try to schedule in time where you're going to watch TV if you can. Even if it means you might have to graduate a semester later than you had planned to, but that could possibly prevent bur burnout. And here's how I notice burnout. When my students stop being present, and I don't mean physically there, they're usually physically there, but in communication we have a term for presentness. Sometimes, for example, people are there in body, but not in mind, and this can cause problems in many aspects of your life. For example, say you're with your significant other, and you're spending time together, but you're not really there. You're not really enjoying that person. You're not really listening to that person. Your mind is maybe on something else, or maybe you're staring at the TV, or maybe you're worrying about something else instead of truly enjoying that time with that person. And that's what starts to happen when people are getting burnout. Wherever they're at, they stop being present. For example, they might sit in my class for 75 minutes, but they're just sort of thinking of something else while we're doing an exercise or activity or listening to a discussion. Their mind isn't there, and that's a shame because when you have to be somewhere physically for 75 minutes, if you could fully put your mind in that place, um, that would be a good thing. But I can tell when they stop doing that, then they experience burnout. And like you all said, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting re different results. Students who fail my class, sometimes retake my class and then they fall back into the same patterns, the same things wrong with the speeches and doing the same things over again. And I think they're experiencing burnout. I think they're still working 40 hours a week and still taking a full-time course load and still experiencing burnout. If I may, uh, you know, people, as far as happiness is concerned, people find happiness in, in the moment as it's happening. And if, if your moments are really just thinking about what's next, you're really cheating yourself of, of, of many opportunities for, for, for great and true happiness. So I, I think that, you know, as you point out, being with a significant other or spouse or uh, in a class and being there of body but not in mind is really uh, cheating yourself out of that opportunity to, to actually experience it and, 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 you know, experience some happiness too with it. And I think that ties into work ethic, too. You're more likely to do a better job without necessarily spending more time on something if you're fully present, however mundane or small the job is. Yeah. I'm not saying being hedonistic, you know, like don't just, you know, all pleasure all the time, that's all that matters, but, uh, you know, you should look for things that are pleasure-seeking. Okay, and to move on to our final question, with, which really kind of is going to sum up everything this panel is really about, I would like to just ask you, what do you do for a living? Or what are you going to do for a living? Or what are you majoring in? Because when people ask you that question, they're not really just asking, what job do you go to every day? In a way, that question is asking, who are you? Okay, so moving on to our next question, to what extent do our jobs define who we are? Well, for better or for worse, I think jobs define a great to a, to a great extent uh, who we are. I mean, everything from financially, uh, which puts you into certain positions and gives you certain opportunities that you may or may not have, uh, depending on the economic scale, uh, to your entire lifestyle. Um, you know, uh, whether or not you work with your hands, whether or not you work with your mind, um, where you're going to live, where the family is going to reside, how many hours do you have to put in. I remember Mitch in one of our meetings was talking about the great flexibility we have as professors spending, uh, you know, so we give up maybe monetary gain to, to gain time at home. Um, 
I think work defines who you are uh, to a large extent. Um, and for me, my personal opinion, that's why I think there's probably no greater decision. There's only a couple of key decisions in life, and, and one of the most important ones is what you're going to you know, exchange your time for. The most precious thing you have on this earth is your time. It's the only thing you can't buy, and it's the only commodity you're never going to get back. You're going to exchange your precious gift of time to somebody or something. And that's going to define not only who you are, but it's going to have great ramifications on your family as well. Yeah, I think um, if I approach it very scientifically and we say there's 24 hours in a day, healthily we should spend eight of those sleeping, we're going to spend eight of them at work, and then the other eight in all the rest of our life. If I look at it that way, I'm either a sleeper or I'm a nurse because that's how those two big eight-hour chunks fall out. Everything else takes much less of my time. Um, so if you're trying to quantify it or just try to parcel it out, I think that work very much defines you because it is where you spend the majority of your time and you spend time, I know as a, as a teacher, I spend time preparing, I spend time grading, I spend time planning, I spend a lot of time even in those other eight hours um, trying to be better at being a teacher. So um, in that aspect, I think it defines me. However, I think we're back to that same piece of um, if I wasn't working, would I stop being Marianne? I don't think that's true either. I think I would, there's still pieces of me. So part of me as a person is what led me to that job, and what I do in that job is what makes me this person. I think it's really um, you know, a, an interaction. Yeah, uh, I agree with both of uh, my panelist members as well. Um, it, it very much defines who we are. Uh, and if you, it's not the only thing, but if, 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 if you don't think that your work defines you, you're lying to yourself. Um, and, and the question is only a problem if you don't like what you do. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's very much the same as I can, like, you know, not psychologically, this is my true professional opinion, but like gambling tends to be a problem when you're losing, you know. It's kind of the same thing, um, that... You, you're spending so much of your time doing this, and, and Rich, I, I completely, uh, maybe I read more into it, but I, I, the emphasis on the concept of time there is, is so critical uh, that you're, you know, whether it's something you enjoy or not, you know, I mean, it could be I have this great job, it's part of who I am, it contributes to these socioeconomic conditions of, you know, how much money I make, what kind of education I can maybe afford and, and whatnot, but it also can be, you know, I also have this crappy job. Uh, there's this thing I don't like. And that also will contribute to part of that self-concept, and it will emerge somewhere. Uh, it may not be the only thing, but we might have other great things inside that are, you know, that we're enriched from uh, that, that kind of overshadow these negative things about our job. But if, 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 if you're a person who don't, doesn't think that whatever you're doing with most of your time doesn't really account for who you are, uh, you really are lying to yourself and you're cheating yourself out of, you know, as Rich put it, your most precious commodity, with, which is your time. To follow up, what about virtue? Some jobs in our culture are just considered so noble. Like if you say, oh, I have this friend and he's a firefighter, especially ever since 9-11, if you say somebody's a firefighter, oh, that's so great. Well, obviously not everybody can be that. So what makes a job virtuous 
probably have to begin by defining what virtue is. Um, I know in my class with the Greeks we call virtue moral excellence, and that is devoting uh, everything you have into what you're doing. So in that respect, what jobs are virtuous? They're all virtuous. I mean, who, really, who, what job is more important than the other? I mean, I could say I'm a you know big shot professor. Well, you know what? If the sink backs up, you're not going to be calling me. You don't really need my theories at that point. You need a plumber. And at that point, the plumber becomes the most important person in the universe. Um, uh, all jobs are important. Uh, you know, we're, we all have different gifts and talents, and I can't imagine a world filled with philosophers. Nothing would get done. Uh, you know, so <laughs> what job's important? They all are. You know, to me, it's not the job. The, 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 the question really is, what are you putting into that job? If you're a stonemason and you put everything into it, then that stonemason job is the most important job on this planet. I, I pretty much nicely done. You know, I, I think it's you know really don't have much more to contribute to that same idea. But it's the the idea of virtue is really just I don't want to use the word effort because that kind of cheapens it a little bit. But as long as you're doing something and you're giving it all and it's a wholehearted kind of idea. It doesn't matter what the work is. You can be digging a ditch, and it could be a virtuous job because it's providing something for you, and and it's uh, benefiting, uh, you know, mankind and somehow or humankind in in some fashion. So we, I, I agree. I mean, any job is virtuous, and I don't think you have to attach it to a few things, but. Uh, given some of the nobility, if you will, of, you know, some service workers and whatnot and some experiences they've had. If, you know, there are some uh, uh, perceptions of virtue that go with certain jobs just inherently. What about the marketing executive for a big tobacco company? Is that a virtuous job? If they put their whole effort into marketing carcinogenic materials... Two people. <laughs> before Sorry for after the, uh, b- before or after the uh, you know the medical uh, information yeah. came out. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a good question. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I'd like to think that uh, to that person it would be. Otherwise, uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, the only word that will come to mind that give me trouble would be like evil. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, if you're not doing it for that reason, then you know, and believe in it, then I, I think. You know, it's uh, it'd be the opposite, which I don't know what the opposite of virtuous would be. But Rachel, you want to help me out from that one? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll take the I'll take the other side here. Uh, yeah. No, I, I I don't think the guy who puts his heart and soul into that into that profession uh, is noble. Um, I, you know, I think I think you start with the definition of, of what I said previously about putting your heart and soul into it. But then you definitely have to define virtue. You know, I I believe there are categories of virtuous jobs versus non-virtuous jobs. Uh, I think when we create, you know, a job that contributes to the overall health of a civilization would be considered a virtuous job. Um, you know, you can sell a car one of two ways. You can sell a car properly, ethically, morally, and in a good manner, or you can rip people off. So, yeah, um, in summary of, of that particular virtue question, I guess some people, their job is just considered absolutely noble by our culture. And then some people, like that particular marketing executive or, or say, a person who is a lawyer and defends, you know, people who have been uh, accused of murder and things like that, I guess some of them have to work a little harder to justify what they do versus automatically being attached virtue to it. 
Well, we only have about 20 minutes left, so what I'd like to do now is let our panelists uh, respond to some of the questions or comments or stories or anything that the audience has. So what questions or comments do you have for us? Uh, yes? She is asking what keeps us as professors motivated to help out students and keep students motivated. Well, Cookie, you know, since you're in my class, uh, <laughs> you, know, um, you know, really, it, you know, I wish I had some altruistic answer out there, but really, it's a uh, it's a passion and a belief for you know. Uh, you know, I'm a big believer in education as being an equalizer. I mean, I know it's said enough, but I truly and wholeheartedly believe that with every fiber of my body. Um, I also love my topic. Could I teach? Uh, I enjoy economics, but could I be an economics professor? I don't think I'd get the same satisfaction, and I would, you know, I don't think the drive would be there to keep going day in and day out. So I think it's the topic, the enjoyment I have, the, the life versus, you know, the meaning I'm getting from my work as well as the belief that uh, the opportunity I'm providing or, or helping to assist with, uh, you know, getting the opportunity for education. How you doing, dear? Uh, I hate my children, so I don't want to go home, so that's why I stare. I'll just take Mitch's answer. He's dead on. I think that I first want to say appreciate that you are aware that sometimes we don't feel really motivated to be helped. I mean, sometimes you have a hard day at work, and you do have to really try to do a good job and not just react or, you know, be a negative person. So I appreciate that as a student you see that there is, a, there is some work to staying motivated and trying to be a good instructor. Um, for me, I think it goes back to what I said about a lot of work for me and why I like being a nurse is the person-to-person -person interaction. And so if I keep focused on that, that I'm working with another person here and understand them as a person and not just a student in my class is this number or this thing I'm moving through. But um, And a lot of my students, I mean, we talked a lot about um, the struggles of students. A lot of the nursing students that are here and that some of you know, um, many of them also have families now. So they're balancing being a parent, being a spouse, um, sometimes uh, working to maintain their home or their own um, personal well-being in addition to going to school. So if I can get to that instead of just looking at you as, you know, student 22 on Tuesdays at 8 o'clock, that helps me a lot. And I just want to mention, as far as personalities are concerned, there, there are different types of people different types of personalities, like some people are leaders and some people are taskmasters and some people are organizers and some people are intrinsically helpers. And I think that your teachers, at least the ones who seem really into what they're doing, based on what all of you just said, I think we're naturally helpers. We just love to help somebody and watch them grow and improve based on what we've done. So I think that's what keeps teachers motivated. Okay, next question. Yes, you in the back. Let me repeat the question so it gets onto our podcast. What she said is, 
all students and, and all people have different circumstances, and some of those circumstances can make the job very, very tough to complete, and, and you can end up feeling very discouraged and overwhelmed. And she wants to know, when we hit those points in our life, what did we do to overcome that hurdle? I can give you a very non-romantic answer, but a very real answer for, for my personal life. I looked at my father who got up at 4 o'clock in the morning and shoveled coal for a living. That kept me going. I didn't want to be that at 50 years old. Not that there was anything wrong with that. I admire him. He's a better man than I'll ever be. But I didn't want that. So as tough as it was during those seven years, the option was no other, the alternative was no option for me. I had to fulfill my passion. I got one shot at this. I got one life. You know, I'm not going out that way. I want to do what I'm going to. If I'm going out, I'm going out doing what I love. And I, and I agree with the idea of the the love. My father didn't uh, shovel coal. You know, he's a photojournalist, and uh, you know, but it was it was a little different. Um, but it was. I think, you know, the whole idea of, like, getting there is half the fun. You have to enjoy it, you know, to some level. I mean, it's work, you know. I mean, you know, you're, like I said, not just because you're not getting paid for it, you know, the, the, the monetary aspect doesn't define it. If the work is the meaningful for you, Shanice, you know, if, it, if that's what does it, I think that's going to allow you to persevere and deal with the setbacks. And not every day is going to be, you know, a peachy day. And, uh, but if it's worth it, if you have the, you know, there's a value to it, that's what's going to be the drive that's going to be able to persist. So I think that's what it comes down. It's a question of drive and what's driving you to do it. I also think it goes back to what we've been talking about in terms of balance. I know when there have been times um, that I wanted to be somewhere the fastest or the best, and that to me became the hurdle sometimes. Um, and I wasn't good at doing this for myself, but I luckily had a family and friends around me who could help me remember that um, the balance of your life is also important. And so if it takes, I know Krista said earlier, if it takes an extra semester, if it takes an extra two months, if it takes stepping out and fixing those things that are causing that challenge so you can be focused on school, it's very hard to do at the time. So building those supports that will tell you those are the good options because 10 years from now you know whether you finished in December or May is going to make absolutely no difference at all right now it feels like it's the most important thing but as you move on in your life and as you move on through your career those few months won't really matter but if you keep pushing through now with with all those challenges and you fail it may change where you're at 10 years from now and that you might really regret and, and just to mention, based on actual data that Moraine Valley has acquired by surveying students and, and actually national data for that matter, two major things that could make or break a student in your situation are support groups, like she mentioned. If you have family uh, and friends who are supportive of what you're doing and understand what you're doing, you're, you're more likely to succeed and get over those hurdles. If you don't, you need to find that support group, whether it's a study group from your class or other students. Um, and, of course, relationships with teachers. If you feel a connection to your teacher and you've been communicating with that teacher and you feel like they personally care about you, you're also more likely to be able to get through those hurdles. So in addition to everything everybody set up here, absolutely. Uh, support is an excellent point. Okay, yeah. next question. Yes. Then you find yourself, and then you also say that you have a calling. I mean, you 
have a calling, that some people have that calling. If you don't have that calling, how did you, how did you know, how were you so sure that you wanted to? Okay, let me repeat the question, uh, Professor Wolf. She says, in your class you talk about how the ancient Greeks and Romans talked about finding yourself first and then knowing what you're going to do and what, you're going, what your calling is. And also we talked in, in this panel about some people having a calling and that's how they just knew what they wanted to be. And she's asking a question I think a lot of students have. What if we don't know our calling? A lot of people don't uh, know their call. I mean, listen, uh, you know, I joke about it in my classroom. It's not like God's going to come down one day and, you know, be a dentist. Oh, good. You know, now, <laughs> now I know. That, that helps. Um, I think it's different for different people. I knew when I was in college at uh, 20 years old, I knew that I loved philosophy. I had no life. I wanted, you know, I knew I loved philosophy more than anything else. So I said, well, what, I, what can I do with a philosophy degree? Well, not much. You've got to become a professor. Okay, what's that? Well, you've got to go to school seven more years. So I went 20, 21, 27. Oh, my gosh. I'll be an old man. Forget that. <laughs> and so, right, talk about, you know, being short-sighted there, you know. Um, but I, I think a way to find it is you have to identify your strengths and your weaknesses, what you're good at. You know, you brought up a phrase earlier, people person. If you're not a people person, well, probably teaching's not your profession. That's not your calling. It's not real rocket science. But we all have talents and, 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 and desires. Every one of us has them, and they're completely unique to you. Nobody has the exact talents and passion and drives to the degree that you possess them. Nobody else has that. So you need to make a list. I mean, as, as academic as it seems, make a list of the things that you're very, very good at, the things that you love, the things that you despise. And that's going to help form you into what you, into what you want to become, what you want to do. I think we do have it backwards in our society. You know, you know, 16 years old, they got you guys at high school taking these goofy tests about what you're going to do the rest of your life. You've got to be kidding me. You know, I, I know 30-year-olds that don't have a clue what they want to do with their life. You're going to do it at 18, which is, by the way, I think, I hate to give a commercial for Moraine Valley, but um, I think two-year uh, colleges are absolutely the way to go. Most people at 18 don't have a clue what they want to major in. You know, and, and, and to take a class in something you're majoring in is absolutely ludicrous at 18. Um, but make that list and identify it. And the other thing I tell people to do is start working different jobs. The best education is go do it. Drive a cab, lay brick, be a waitress, do them all. And I can tell you, you're going to find out pretty quick in the real world what's good. I mean, suddenly all the theory goes out the window, you know, and you'll find out what you like and what you don't like. Do work. Every kind of job, even if it's volunteer, get out there and do something. Yeah, and I, I just want to add with that, I also think, again, allow that it might change. You might feel like, I don't know what my calling is now, so I'm going to work so I could take several different classes, or I'm going to try several different jobs till I find it. Um, I've been here at Marine, this is my 10th year, and if you had asked me 12 years ago, would you teach nursing? I would have said, absolutely not. I would never be a nursing instructor. That is the worst job in the world. At, like Rich, when I came here, I took a significant cut in my salary. I also, in my school, had a lot of instructors that I didn't like. I, I, I didn't have a lot of respect for a lot of the instructors that taught me because it was a very, very punitive and negative kind of program to become a nurse. But now that I've come here, and, and it was just kind of random things that happened in my life that got me to apply for this job and try it out and, and build it, 
this is one of the happiest times I've been in a job. Um, so it's changed for me. I mean, I've said I've always been a nurse, but now I definitely say I'm a nursing instructor. And I don't know that I would ever go back to some of my old jobs full time. I think I'll always be teaching because I found that I really like that. But I didn't know that even, you know, a few years before I started here. You know, you're not a politician, so you have, or maybe that's your inspiration. I don't know, but you have the you have the right to change your mind yeah. too. You know, right now it could be this, and uh, so you don't have to be married to whatever you stay at this moment. And for right now, it could be the right thing. But as as Rich pointed out, you try it, and then if you get there, you have the right to change your mind. That didn't work, and you know, move forward to find something that does work and it fits. And when it does, you hopefully will know it. Yes. I just want to paraphrase for the uh, podcast. She said that she didn't really find her calling and know what she wanted to do until she was 50 years old. And to, as, as advice to all the other students here, leave your options open. Get to know yourself and, and who you are first. And it's okay if you have two to three you know, different careers in a lifetime, which is actually most people do. Most people change careers multiple times in their life. I learned that from our career center, which we do have a career center that has a lot of books and some personality tests and things like that that might help guide you. So I just wanted to mention that. Okay, next question. Or comment. Sarcastic remarks. <laughs> Yes, sir. Can any of the panelists relate to any of the stories that Studs Terkel talks about? Hey, he asked us, can any of us relate to the stories that Stud Turkles talks about in his book, Working? Well, I, I do have my little stickies here, and I could read, <laughs> I could read a few things. Um, <laughs> um, I actually did, there were a couple things to point out, but I think um, one of the things that I read, and again, um, I read a lot of the other things on the website as well, because this is an older book, and so you have to, you know, take in context what was happening at that time and what the role was. So as a nurse, of course, I went right to the nursing ones, and, and I went to the um, professor of occupational therapy because I thought, oh, that's close to what I do. Um, and definitely there were parts of that that I still felt I related to. Um, but the things that I read in those people's stories um, were very similar to the things that we've talked about uh, in terms of um, finding the meaning for yourself. I think all of those people said um, what I'm doing is really what matters to me and not what the people around me think of what I'm doing or what um, other people think I should be doing, but what I think is important. Um, and they did talk. I, I actually had one I, I could quickly say. Um, uh, the, one of the nurses says, um, until recently I wasn't sure how meaningful my work was. I had doubts. 
A surgeon does a really beautiful job. That's meaningful to him immediately. But that's not the kind of sustaining thing that makes a job meaningful. It must concern the relationship you have with who you work with. We get hung up sometimes in competition. Who's responsible for saving this life? Who's responsible for change in this dying patient? Rather than saying, isn't it beautiful that we all together help make this person's life better? And that really, that definitely spoke to me as a nurse and also as a teacher. That's a big, scary book, you know, and it's, uh, you know, and I'm not as organized as Mary Ann, so I didn't bring it with me. But uh, I just want to also, I don't know what material was actually put forth, uh, you know, from the panel and whatnot, but there's another book called Gigs, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's on there. It's a more a, kind of a modern version of, uh, of working, so if you are interested in hearing accounts of people in their job as they're doing it, um, you know, that would be another opportunity. It's not a scary looking of a book, you know, and, and again, you don't have to read it cover to cover, and that's the nice thing about this. You could find some things that you want to see, uh, you know, I think I know what this job's about, but here's an account from someone living in it. So that's, I think that's the value of the book, both of them. I just want to mention some of the jobs in here are timeless, and some of them are sort of dated, like the flight attendant from the 70s. It's very different the way they treat them now. And for me personally, there was actually a professor of communications in this book, and I actually totally identified with, um, with his account. And he talked about how he taught his students persuasion and how persuasion is power, but how he had to teach them not to abuse that power and how there is a such thing as ethical persuasion. So I personally just really identified that. And, and I do want to mention, you don't have to read this whole book. The great thing about it is you could just pick two or three particular jobs, and there are two to three pages. Pages. And yet it might be really interesting, like, what does a prostitute have to say about her job? You know, something like that just might be um, really kind of unique. Other questions, comments? What page was the prostitute? <laughs> page 230. No, I don't know. It's the only one I read, that and the professor. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> a graphic oh, novel? Oh, cool, a graphic. Is that Studs, Studs Turkle's? Oh, it's Studs Turkle's working um, in a graphic novel form, and our library has it. That's really interesting. Graphic novel being like comic strips? Thank you. Oh, great. There you are. Yeah. Other questions or comments? I have one. Yes. What if, just say, you guys in the job that y'all love, Let me repeat the question. What would we do, you know, as professors, we love our job so much and everything's all flowers and sunshine here at Moraine, but say we had to leave and go to this dark, dismal place that had a very negative atmosphere, very discouraging atmosphere, but it's still our job. It's still a job as a teacher. How would we cope with that? Is that your question? Yeah. Uh, it's a great question. Um, it's a great question because it's real. It's life. Um, I don't care where you go. It's not going to be perfect. Um, my answer to you guys would be this. Draw a small little square. Because wherever you go, that's all you're going to be able to affect. You can't control all the change that's going about you. Here at Moraine Valley, we have a president. You know, One day he's going to leave. Somebody else is going to come in. I can't control that. I'll tell you what I can control. This. 
And in that environment, pursuit of excellence, throw your heart and soul into it. That way, no matter where you are, that square is always excellent. That's uh, the main point, I think, Ramel, to take from that is that you really are, uh, the only thing you can control is yourself at that point. I mean, you know, granted, I think uh, a professor job is a little different because in the end I can close the door, you know, and for that hour and 15 I'm kind of isolated from everyone else unless it's the class that I don't want to be around. But, um, you know, but exact, that's exactly it. So, I mean, not every profession has that luxury. So I think really as long as you're kind of controlling wh- what it is that you like, Hopefully everything else will take care of itself. And I, these guys are much more in their brain than I am. So those are that's the right answer in my heart. That's what I'd say the right answer is. The real thing for me, and this has happened twice, is I've quit and found another job. Um, and that sometimes I had to drive farther to find it, or sometimes it took me being off work for a while till I could find something else. Um, but... If it was really that miserable, and I've had that twice in my life, um, I, I left. Great question. Well, our time is up. Did anybody have a pressing comment or question that they that they want me to squeeze in before we adjourn? Yes. We have three panelists who love their job and their job identifies them. What if you couldn't do that job Hey, the question was, what if you couldn't be in this job that you love so much? You just couldn't be a teacher anymore. What would you do? Okay, real short answer. Um, If I couldn't be a teacher anymore, whatever I would do, uh, let's say I had to go sell shoes, I'd find teaching opportunities within that because that's who I am. (laughs) I wouldn't be called a teacher. My paycheck doesn't say teacher. But, see, I'm not a teacher because my paycheck says teacher. I'm a teacher because that's who I am. I agree. I'd be a philosopher. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you all very much, and thank you to our panelists. You did a great job. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library.